0: This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. The Holy Gospel according to Luke 21, 5-19. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so, you will be witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will gain life. the Word of God in Scripture, for the Word of God among us, for the Word of God within us. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, it's ironic, or perhaps fitting, that this week of all weeks in the lectionary we have an apocalyptic text. In other words, a text that's often been interpreted to be speaking about the end of the world. For many... This week has felt a bit apocalyptic. For many, it feels unthinkable, unimaginable, even terrifying. A number of friends have said that they've kind of felt numb all week. Many have compared it to how they felt after 9-11 or a friend or a loved one died. Now, I understand that not all of us feel that way. Some are hopeful... Perhaps even elated. So a quick proviso here at the front end. This is not going to be a message about who's on what team. We're all on the same team. It's not to shame anyone who voted a certain way or to praise anyone who voted another way. In the UCC, we seek to have unity in diversity. We want multiple views together. We're all in this together. But I do think we have to acknowledge that things have shifted a bit in this country. And it's worth reflecting on that a little bit together. And I think our text today has something to say perhaps to each of us. So is this text about the end of the world? Jesus talks about stones not standing on one another. He's talking about the destruction of the temple, which was one of the archaeological marvels of the world. This thing was huge and massive and unbelievable to say that not one stone is going to be left standing on another he speaks of wars and uprising and earthquakes sounds pretty bad and so the disciples like many of us this week are feeling anxious when is all this going to happen and I think a question many are asking as well is God how could you let this happen God where are you And so our temptation, perhaps, is to wait on God to make things right. To wait on God to fix everything. In the end, we're often told, Jesus is going to come back and fix it all. So, sit tight. You don't need to worry. There's an ancient story that speaks, in fact, of a second coming of the Messiah. And it is said that he arrived anonymously, one dull Monday morning, at the gates of the great city, to go about his father's business. There was much for him to do. And while many years had passed since his last visit, the same suffering was present all around. Still there were the poor, the sick, and the oppressed. Still there were the outcasts. Still there were the righteous who pitied them and the authorities who exploited them. For a long time, no one took any notice of this desert wanderer, This man with his weather-beaten face and ragged, dusty clothes. This quiet person who spent his time living among the sick and the unwanted. The great city just kind of labored on, not knowing who dwelled within their midst. Well, the story goes that the Messiah eventually decided to reveal his identity to a chosen few who'd remain faithful to his teachings. These people met together in a tiny, unknown church on the outskirts of the city to pray and to serve the poor. As the Messiah entered the modest sanctuary one Sunday morning, his eyes fell upon the tiny group huddled in the corner, each one praying and weeping for the day of the Lord. As they prayed, those who had gathered in the church slowly began to feel the gaze of Christ penetrate their souls. Silence began to descend within the circle as they realized who had entered their sacred home. For a time, no one dared to speak. Then the leader of the group gathered her courage, approached Christ, fell at his feet, and cried, we've waited so long for your return. For many years we've waited patiently for you to come, and today, as with every other day, we've prayed for your arrival. Then she stood up and looked Christ in the eyes. Now that you are with us, we have but one question. Christ listened, knowing already what it would be. Tell us Christ, she asked, when will you arrive? Mm -hmm. The Messiah did not answer, but simply smiled. Then he joined the others in their prayers and tears. He remains there still to this very day, waiting, watching, and serving in that tiny, unknown church on the outskirts of the city. be that Jesus is already here, saying, come on guys, let's do this. And so this text, as I understand it, is not about the end of times. It is about some very difficult and dark times that are ahead for the Jewish people, but a look back at history and what's going to unfold in the next uh, 50 to 100 years or perhaps less shows that all the things that are spoken about in this chapter already happened, and so it can't really be talking about the entire end of the world as we often think of it. And I would say this week is not about the end of times. But that's not to say there may not be some difficult and dark times ahead. But Jesus doesn't tell them, just trust in God or just wait for me to get back. No, he gives them a few instructions. Three, I think, especially, that are pertinent for us today. One, he says, watch out that you are not deceived. In other words, discern. He invites us to discern. Two, he says, do not be frightened. And three, he says, you will be my witnesses. And so I want to look at each of these in turn. First of all, Jesus says, Watch out that you're not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming various things. Do not follow them. Well, what is he talking about? Well, a review of history shows us that there were a number of people in the first century who claimed to be Israel's Messiah. Such as Judas the Galilean, who around 6 or 7 CE. That is, Jesus just a toddler at this time. And some guy's on the the scene leading a popular revolt against Rome. About 60 years later, or 30-some years after Jesus dies, his grandson Menachem openly declares himself the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Around that time, there was John of Gisela, who was gathering support at the Galilee, or Simon Bar-Giora, who also gathered a large number of revolutionaries. And then another 60 or so years later, Simon bar Kokhba whom the great Jewish rabbi Akiva acknowledged could be the Messiah, came on the scene. And it was no small thing for a rabbi of Akiva's stature to say, this might be our guy. The Talmud says that Simon presided over an army of as many as 200,000 Jewish insurgents. Well, I think we imagine, right, if we had lived in Jesus' day... We certainly would have followed Jesus. We would have seen through some of these other claimants to Messiahship. And we would have signed up for Team Jesus. But in the midst of things, right, it's not always that easy. Much easier to look back with clarity than to look at the present with clarity. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, don't get on board with everybody who claims to be with me. He's telling them to discern to dig a little deeper well in this country nearly every political candidate claims to be a Christian pretty hard to run for office without it so how do we discern well we have to look at what they say and what they do and what they propose and see does that really match up with Jesus or not so I came up with a quick discernment guide partial not complete. But I would say that bragging about committing sexual assault, that does not look like Jesus. I would say constantly and consistently disparaging women does not look like Jesus. Saying you're going to build a wall to keep people out you don't like, that does not look like Jesus. Referring to a people of a certain ethnic group as killers, criminals, and rapists does not look like Jesus. Threatening to deport people because they are here illegally does not look like Jesus. Blaming violent crime in our cities, primarily on blacks and Hispanics, does not look like Jesus. Ignoring the warning signs that our planet is giving us and claiming that care for the environment and global warming is BS does not look like Jesus. Opposing marriage equality and suggesting gay people should go through conversion therapy does not look like Jesus. Partial list. Now it seems obvious to me, and I could be wrong, I'll admit that, that these things really don't even come close to squaring with the kinds of things Jesus taught and represents. Yet 81% of evangelical Christians voted for someone who said or did all of those things. 81%. So clearly, Jesus' call for discernment is just as important as ever. Now, please hear me say this. If the other party had won, there would be plenty of discernment needed as well. And I don't say these things to be inflammatory, right? Jesus calls us to discern. And there are many who feel frightened, and I'd say they have good reason. And if you think those were just words and now everything will be okay, consider that since the election, supporters have been saying things like, immigrants, pack your bags. The wolves are coming. Do you hear them? They've had a taste of blood. Now they want their meal. There have been racist and anti-LGBTQ outbreaks on college campuses across the country, including right here in Holland, on Hope's campus. The Southern Poverty Law Center says that there's been over 200 acts of hatred and intimidation since the election. And no doubt that number has climbed. We need to discern. Listen again to Jesus. Many will come in my name but if what they're saying and doing doesn't match up, do not follow them. A friend who's a pastor in Florida shared a helpful list on election day that I shared as well on the politics of Jesus. And again, this is a partial list. Love enemies. Serve the poor. Welcome refugees. Make peace, not war. Do justice and love mercy care for all of God's creation. Not a complete list, but it's a start. And it's also a reminder that our ultimate hope is not in any political candidates. Our hope is in God and in God's love and in each other. Secondly, Jesus says to his disciples, Do not be frightened. I want us to hear a few voices of folks who are feeling afraid. These quotes are all from friends of mine who are women, gay, or people of color. And again, these are their words, not mine, but I think we need to hear the fear and the pain that's out there. How did this happen? Says one. I'm so scared for my life. Will my partner and I be protected? I'm not sure I can leave the city and return to my home state. I'm just so sad. My clergy said adults in an ESL class taught by one of my parishioners expressed their fear that as immigrants they'd no longer be welcomed in their communities. My black Latina wife cried her eyes out because she no longer feels safe. Gay friends expressed the deep fear that their marriages could be invalidated. My mother cried on the phone worried that she might lose her health insurance. A Muslim friend warned her younger sister last night not to walk alone anymore. And a local University Muslim Students Association found the word Trump scrawled in the door of their prayer room today. One more voice. I am not sobbing over politics. I am not weeping for my candidate's loss. I am not inconsolable because one person made horrible promises. I am blisteringly devastated, raw, and depleted. I am thoroughly disgusted, nauseous, and void because millions of Americans and Christians have decided that I and she and he are not. And there are no platitudes or prayers that can touch my despair. responses from Christian friends this week have been, well, God is still on the throne. Anyone see that on their social media feed? Maybe you posted that. And I get it. But it reminds me of a story that the great teacher Anthony DeMello told. He says, on the street I saw a naked child, hungry, shivering in the cold. I became angry and said to God, why did you allow this? Why don't you do something? God did not reply. My despair grew, but God remained silent. But then later that very night, he said quite suddenly, I certainly did something. I made you. Jesus, as his disciples are about to face brutal resistance for remaining faithful to him, for opposing the powers that be, does not say, Well, sit back. God has it covered. Jesus says do not be frightened he's not saying it's going to be easy he's saying I'm with you you're going to be given words to say he says as you stand up for me and he says I'm counting on you he's inviting us to stand with and for the frightened and if we are frightened he says I am with you a friend put it this way Again, these are not my words, but I think worth hearing. Stop telling me to pray harder and let go and let God. God is not in control. Was God in control of slavery? Was God in control of Native American genocide? Was God in control of lynchings? Was God in control of the Holocaust? Is God in control of human trafficking? Is God in control of child abuse? Is God in control of war crimes? Just stop with that rancid theology. We have been given free will and we are blowing it. Want it to be different? Do something. Our temptations in days like this is to blame. Maybe blame God. And I think we're given biblical precedence to say, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? Right? The scriptures invite us to cry out and lament. Might be tempting to blame a certain political party, a certain group of voters. There's a lot of blame going around right now. But Jesus says to us, turn that finger that you're pointing out there and turn it around. Turn it around. Want it to be different? Do something It's not going to be easy, but do not be frightened. I am with you. Which leads us right into Jesus' third instruction. You will be my witnesses. This election has given us an opportunity, friends, to display a different kind of Christianity, to display a love that goes deeper than divisions, Love that's rooted in nonviolent action and peace. The activist and contemplative Jesuit priest John Deere, whom we heard from earlier, has said that violence is forgetting or ignoring who we are. Right? We act in violence toward each other when we forget who we really are. And he says nonviolence is remembering who we are. He says it's recalling every day of our lives that we are all equal. We're all sisters and brothers. We're all children of God. We're all already reconciled to one another and to God. Nonviolence means living our lives from this basic spiritual reality. And then he says this, All of the world's violence, war, and hatred are rooted in our own hearts. The journey of nonviolence is a journey of the heart. If we want to be peacemakers and activists, we have to plunge to the inner depths of nonviolence. We must disarm our own hearts so that we can cease our own violence, our own ego and domination, and begin to offer something positive to the world. We must spend our lives becoming nonviolent people. I was raking the leaves a little bit yesterday that time, even mowed the lawn, which seems strange in the middle of November, but I was raking the leaves, and uh, we have a little red wagon, a little red flyer. It's got a metal handle, and the handle was on the ground, and I started thinking of something that made me upset. The Michigan hadn't even played yet, uh, but I was thinking of something that made me upset, and I kicked the handle up in anger, and it struck me right on the knee. And it, I don't know where it hit, but it, it knocked me to the ground. And I laid there in pain for 15 minutes. And I just thought, this is a little, right, a little parable, right? (laughs) That anger and violence within, we think that's what's going to make it right. But when we allow our anger and our own violence to have its way, it disables us. Or it invites us to participate with the very things we're opposed to. Jesus offered the ultimate teaching on nonviolence. He said, instead of killing your enemies, love them. Love them. Love has the power to transform even the most divided communities, and we are divided, aren't we? In this country, in our state, in our town, among our families, among our friends. Let us not blame, let us not point fingers, let us listen and let us love. This is how Jesus invites us to be his witnesses. He says, they'll know you are my disciples if you love one another. If we have family and friends and if some of us are celebrating right now, let's listen to each other. Let's hear that out. And let's love one another. Let's be charitable and slow to judge. It's not going to be easy. Jesus says you'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. And yet love compels us above all to stand for and with the most vulnerable. Children, people of color, immigrants, women, the disabled, Muslims. Pope Francis said, let us learn solidarity. Without solidarity, our faith is dead. But what can we actually do? What can we actually do? Jim Wallace of Sojourners had a few ideas. He said, solidarity must be very practical. Churches may need to open themselves up as sanctuaries, taking in undocumented immigrants who may be deported. Massive civil disobedience may be called for. And if the federal government and its agencies will not protect young people of color from the violence of racial profiling, religious communities will have to. And he lists a number of other things, and he says all of this will be risky and costly. So there are real things we can do together. How else might we be witnesses? Maybe you've heard of the safety pin campaign that has started. Anybody hear that? Could you not hear of it? Sorry. Um, so one, one thing I saw, or somebody posted about this, said wearing a safety pin, right, just a little symbol. It says, I'm safe. If you're a Muslim, a woman, lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, a person of color, Latinx, trans, an immigrant, disabled, afraid, I am here. Speak, I'll listen. I'll hold you. I'll stand up for you. I'll sit down for you. I'll shut up for you. I'll do what I can to let you know I love you. People need to hear that today. And it's not a perfect thing, and it's not everything. And I've already seen people critiquing it, right? So it's not perfect, but it's something. What else? There was a peaceful rally yesterday, I heard, at Centennial Park. Some of us are working with friends from Holland Pride to plan a peaceful vigil of love and solidarity for for Tuesday night. This Tuesday, 6 o'clock at the Unity Bridge. Love to have you join us. Being a witness means being visible. Well, this wasn't an easy week to think of the right things to say and no doubt I've done it imperfectly and some will say I went too far and some will say I didn't go far enough. As an African-American preacher, Will Gaffney, said this week, speaking to preachers, she said, If your concern is not taking sides and not offending anyone, sit down. The gospel takes sides. It is not neutral on injustice. Its cost is crucifixion. Preach like that. And I'd say the corollary is, live like that. Jesus says to his disciples, You will be my witnesses. Witnesses to love, to justice, to peace, to the Prince of Peace. I am ready to be a witness. Anyone with me? Amen. And namaste. i got a
1: song for Brandon. Uh, I wrote this this week as a song of lament um, and hope. And so I pray that you. I hope that you will join in, uh, in the spirit of that. Um, We've settled for safety At the cost of our soul From a system that's broken It's spinning out and be passive he didn't say that (laughs) hallelujah isn't passive it's a resilient uh, action that we take Um, and saying that in the face of things that are wrong um, is what we're called to do and that can look like not commenting on a Facebook post it can look like uh, giving someone a hug or making a safe space for people so I want to sing a song called hallelujah and I want you to sing it with if you don't know the verses, can just sing the chorus. Um, and let's leave here today breathing and living hallelujah in resilience. <laughs>
0: light gets in. And as St. Francis prayed, and as we heard sung so beautifully earlier, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Let us go forth and sow love together. And as you go, let the light of God shine within you and to you and through you. Amen, and go in peace. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.